I'm going to ask you to turn to the back middle portion of the worship guide. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to open to Luke's Gospel, to the 10th chapter. We have been going through Luke's Gospel over the last couple of years. We took a break uh, over the summer and fall, and now we're back into it. The Gospel of Luke, what is it? It's a, it's a first century eyewitness record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. If you want to learn about who Jesus is, if you want to know more about what he came to the earth to accomplish, why that matters to us, why we're still talking about it today, this is why Luke wrote. He says in the very first chapter of his book that he writes this record so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught about Jesus. Luke isn't writing as a disinterested, dispassionate historian. No, he's eager for people to develop genuine faith in Christ and to become his followers, whether that is in the first century or in the 21st century. He wants you to see, to know, and to love and trust this Jesus who you're hearing about in these pages. And that's my hope for you this morning. That's our hope for you as a church as we look at Luke together. Our text this morning, starting in verse 17, it picks up from last week, if you can remember from last week's sermon, where Jesus had sent out 72 of his followers into the country to preach the good news about God's kingdom, to heal hurting people. And after what sounds like a very exciting, very successful mission, the 72 returned to Jesus to give him a report. Andrew's going to read for us. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 24. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Father, would you be gracious to us now and open our eyes by the power of your Spirit. Help us to see, know, love, and trust this Jesus we're about to hear from. Lord, would you guard this time? Would you protect it and use it for your purposes? As we pray the Lord's Prayer, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that your will would be done right now, that your kingdom would come and grow in our midst. Forgive our slowness to believe, Father. Forgive our hardness of heart. We need life, and so we ask that you would enliven and soften us now. Break up the hard soil of our hearts so that your word can be planted in us and bear good fruit to everlasting life. Amen. John Calvin, the 16th century 
French pastor and theologian once wrote this, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. The human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Calvin was in horrified awe when he looked at his own heart, when he considered the hearts of those he pastored, and he saw over and over again the unlimited human capacity to take anything, even very good things, and turn them into God things. He saw the temptation that you and I and every person that's ever walked on this earth have, which is to turn the gifts that we receive from God into God replacements. So Calvin said, our hearts are like factories. They receive raw materials from the world, things that are often quite innocent, things like food and comfort, uh, education, money, jobs. And what do we do with this raw material? By our very nature, because of the corruptness of our hearts, we take them and we create for ourselves idols with them, objects of ultimate devotion and attention. The late Tim Keller, he wrote a book that picks up on this concept. The book is called Counterfeit Gods. Counterfeit Gods. In it, he makes the case that what the Bible calls sin uh, is always a form of idolatry. Idolatry is when we, we put anything in the highest place of priority in our affections and attention and obedience toward God. So God alone belongs there in the central place of our hearts, but we're very quick to replace him with the things he's created. Such lives that are off-kilter, off-center for where we're supposed to be, they often are marked by a lack of true joy, true and lasting joy, because instead of looking to God, who is the very source of joy and light and truth, they look at counterfeit gods, look to these counterfeit gods for what only God can provide. And this is ultimately deadly to us. Any other type of God but the true God, as the son of our solar system, this will destroy us in the end. Now, there are the usual suspects that you and I think of when we think of sin, of false idols, things that the Bible prohibits that you and I might agree, oh, yeah, I can see how that's destructive to us. Uh, adultery, murder, covetousness. We can see people whose lives are marked by these sins, uh, how that can be destructive to their joy and to their happiness. But Tim's main point, and I think what John Calvin is getting after here, is that it's not only notorious, obvious public sin which does this. The stuff that you and I would agree, this is really, really bad for us. But even, even very good things our hearts can take and produce a counterfeit God with. In our text this morning, Jesus warns his disciples about the dangers of such good things, the potential that lies within them to become for us counterfeit gods. He warns them about some very good things, things that God approves of, he commends us to, he even commands us to pursue in some way, but that he knows can never be an ultimate source of satisfaction and joy for us. They can never take the place of God in our hearts. They were never made to bear that weight. The main point of this whole section, if you want to put it on a postage stamp, is very simple. It's this. True and lasting joy is located in God alone. True and lasting joy is located in God alone. Do you want true and lasting joy? Is that something that you want? Do you want a type of peace that cannot be shaken by your external circumstances, no matter how difficult they are? Where can you find it? Where should you look? There are lots of answers that people will give. You just open your ears and you can hear some answers. Some people will point to things we know to be bad. 
Other people will point us to things that we think might be good. But the scriptures in general, and this text in particular, is very clear. True and lasting joy is located in God alone. But like us, the disciples need to be reminded of this reality often. We need to wake up to hear the potential of counterfeit gods all around us. So this is the first point. True and lasting joy is located in God, not ministry success. True and lasting joy, it's found in God, not in ministry success. Let me explain this. If you look at verse 17, this picks up again where our story left off last week. Again, Jesus had sent out 72 of his gospel runners. These are disciples that he had commissioned to go out and preach the good news. This is what happened last week. Um, And he empowered them. He told them, I want you to go preach the gospel of God to all kinds of people. And he empowered them to do supernatural miracles, to heal people, to cast out demons. And these 72, they went out and they prepared Jesus's way. And in verse 17, they returned to Jesus after a period of time. We're not told how long. And they are like amped. You can get the sense as you read the text. They can't believe the success that they've had. They cannot believe the things that they've seen, the things that they have done. Look at verse 17 with me. The 72 returned to Jesus with joy. That's deep feelings of happiness and gladness, elation. They're on on cloud nine here. And they're saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus, we're crushing it. You gave us a job to do, and we, we just knocked it out of the park. In the Gospels, we meet this really troublesome reality of people who are affected by demons. It was overwhelming. It was the work of the devil himself seen in the lives of people. The Bible everywhere teaches us that this world is not only a natural reality, but it is teeming with supernatural life. And there exists not just the presence of God, but also the presence of malevolent Powerful, personal, unseen spiritual forces that oppress and harass and harm people. So when the disciples report the success they've had, again, in in Jesus' power, they say that. It's not their own. This is wonderful news. This is big news. And Jesus celebrates this with them. It, It is fantastic to see this difficult, impossible work of Satan being made undone. Look at verse 18. Jesus said to them in response, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Seems like Jesus is commending them. This is great. This is success in ministry. It's a good thing. But Jesus goes on. Look at verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. See, these 72 disciples were given unique power and authority to succeed in their mission, to do well in the ministry that God had given them. Satan wouldn't be able to harm them or hinder or slow down this work of ministry. If they were walking from village to village and they were to step on a serpent or scorpion, not uncommon in that region of the world, thankfully far more rare in Halifax, if they were traveling by foot, that wouldn't slow them down. A bite, a sting, no problem. Jesus' power would actually protect them as they went out to do this ministry that he had given to them. And this is seen as a miracle, something extraordinary happening. Uh, This actually happens in the book of Acts in chapter 28, where the Apostle Paul, he's on his way to Rome to preach the gospel, and he's bitten by a poisonous snake. Acts 28, verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them in the fire, a viper came out, and because of the heat, it fastened on his hand. Everyone looking on. We know what happens next. You die. 
However, Paul shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. This is an amazing story, but let me just point out to you quickly that you're not one of the 72. All right? you, you are not the Apostle Paul. You are not one of the hand-selected apostles of Jesus Christ. So as an FYI, you should have no confidence in yourself to tread on snakes. All right? This is not a sermon about snake handling advice to you. But I do want you to look at the scriptures to see what you must have confidence in, that Christ is still with his church powerfully. Perhaps not uniquely in this way where we're casting out demons and treading on snakes. But listen, he has promised throughout the scriptures, he's given confidence to his church in places like Matthew 28, that he will always be with his church in a powerful way to help them succeed in what he's called them to do. That all authority in heaven on earth has been given to Jesus. And as the church bears witness to the good news of Jesus here in Halifax and beyond, as we disciple, as we baptize people, we can and we should expect success. Why? Because Jesus is with us. Notice what Jesus says next, though. They're they're amped. They're pumped. Jesus is with us. We're going to succeed. He's glad that the disciples are experiencing ministry success but look at the warning the caution the way he pumps the brakes here for a moment starting in verse 20 nevertheless do not rejoice in this in these huge winds that you're experiencing and the power of god that you're witnessing as you go about in ministry don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven When Jesus says that that phrase, rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that's a way of saying rejoice that you are saved, that that you are known by God, that you are forgiven and loved by God. You're, You're an adopted son or daughter. Your name is written as an heir of heaven. Jesus says this is to be your source of joy. Now listen, Jesus did, in fact, commission and empower the disciples to go out and serve him. And yes, it's wonderful them to be used uh, by God to see people released from such incredible spiritual bondage. But there's an even greater source of joy for Christians than what they do for Jesus, and that's what he's done for them. This is because true and lasting joy is located in God, not ministry success. Many Christians either swing between one or two different poles. Either they are filled with pride when they are doing the good things that God has called them to do. They're sharing their faith with their coworkers. You know, they're doing family worship every night. They're being bold. They're inviting friends to church. Or, on the other hand, they're crushed with despair because none of these things are happening. They feel like total failures. They have no success in inviting, you know, friends um, to, to come to church or to come to a ministry event or whatever. And they feel without joy, like, again, total failures. What we do is actually not a safe place to find true and lasting joy. True and lasting joy is located in God, what he's done for us, not what we do in ministry. That's true. Not only that, but, but second, our second point is that true and lasting joy is located in God, not intellectual achievement. Not an intellectual achievement. Look at verse 21. Jesus begins with a prayer of praise, of joy. Look at verse 21. He, he rejoices, and that, again, it means extreme happiness, being filled with delight. What thrills Jesus? What is he excited about? Look at verse 21. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things 
from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus here is talking about the gracious work that God has done in revealing Jesus to his disciples. That word revealed in the Greek, Jesus uses it twice here. It's the same word that we'd use for the book of Revelation. It's the Greek word apocalypto. Uh, Revelation is, is a supernatural work of God, a gracious act where he does something to us. When God reveals Jesus to us, what he's doing is opening our eyes to see him so that we at last truly trust him, truly love him, truly want to follow him. Where we're not just seeing and hearing about Jesus, but we're responding to him with faith and trust. Every week I preach Jesus. I hope in a, in a clear enough way where you can understand the words that are coming out of my mouth. <laughs> that's my hope that's happening, okay? Uh, so whether I'm successful or not, you can send me a kind email. Uh, I always want to point, him, uh, point you to him as your hope. I always want you to know that Jesus Christ is the only Savior for lost sinners like you and me. Now, I know that probably everyone in the church hears the exact same words that I'm speaking, but I also know that Jesus is not being revealed to everyone in the same way because that's something that only God can do. God must supernaturally Open your eyes, empower the penny to finally drop for you. Well, you're not just learning about Jesus. This isn't just a, a TED talk where I'm giving you a lecture from history. Where you find instead that you are believing in this Jesus. You find you love and you treasure him. When God graciously reveals Jesus to a person, as Ray Ortland puts it, we stop treating Jesus as a religious garnish to be placed on the side of life. Rather, we find in him our all. He becomes our new sacred center. We gladly lose ourselves in who he is for us, desperate sinners that we are. Jesus' point in verses 21 through 22 is that God loves to do this revealing work to the most unlikely people, not to the wise and understanding, those who are the best at learning, but to little children. Well, this, of course, can refer to actual little children. I'm not denying. In fact, I do believe that God does, and he loves to do this for young people. I think that Jesus here is actually making a particular kind of contrast. He's contrasting people who, on the one hand, think that they can think their way into heaven, who are proud and puffed up because of their academic chops, because of the intellectual strength that they possess, the rigor that they look at the Bible with. They think that they are wise and understanding in this world, and to them... Jesus remains hidden. But on the other hand, are people who admit their foolishness. They know their weaknesses and their shortcomings. They know that they lack understanding. They know they have intellectual blind spots who come to God not as know-it-alls, but instead as little children. This is something that thrills Jesus. He rejoices in because true and lasting joy is located in God, not in our intellectual achievements. Jesus is clear. No one becomes a Christian because they're smart. In fact, really smart people often think they're too smart to be Christians. 
They think Christianity is for fools, for people who can't read well, for little children. And of course, in a way, they're right. Christianity is for people who know they don't have the answers for life anymore. For people who have realized that they have done their very best to live life by what they thought was reasonable, was logical, was based on science or expert opinion, but they've been left empty and joyless because of it. And in their weakness, they come to God not as know-it-alls, but as little children, empty-handed, ready to receive whatever he has to give them. And to many such people, God has been glad to reveal Jesus to them. Now, this isn't a sermon that is anti-intellectual, advising you, please stop reading books. Let's just toss out wisdom and understanding. Not at all. But hear Jesus' warning and hear it really clearly. Do not depend on wisdom and understanding to reveal Jesus to you. True and lasting joy is in God. It is received, not achieved. It's a gift of revelation, not education. True and lasting joy isn't found when we climb up intellectual slopes, but when God in his kindness comes down to us and opens our eyes to Jesus Christ and he becomes our new sacred center. Where can you find true and lasting joy? If you're seeking true and lasting joy and other things have been disappointing you, you need to hear me this morning. It's located in God, not in ministry success, not in intellectual achievement, and finally, third, it's also not in notoriety and influence. It's not in notoriety and influence. Celebrity culture is a big thing in the West. It's amazing how much attention the royal, I'm gonna look for smiles, the royal family gets. <laughs> Pop stars, Super Bowls count up, we all know who's gonna be there. Particular sports figures, even politicians, it's kind of crazy. And it points out to me how many people wish that they could be like these people. Do what these people do. Have their wealth, have their intelligence, their talents, their charisma, their influence, their place in society. We are enamored as a culture by these larger-than-life figures. The disciples actually had different figures in their lives that they admired, and Jesus mentions two kind of groups of people. Verse 24, the ancient prophets and kings. These were figures of enormous religious and national notoriety and influence to these disciples. Everyone knew who they were, uh, and the kind of attention that they commanded. Great prophets like Moses and Isaiah and Elijah were bold and powerful, leading God's people, walking with God. Great and famous kings like David, his son Solomon, they were wealthy but devout, leaders of nations but humble servants of God. Jesus' 72 disciples, of course, they didn't have an Instagram feed, but perhaps were tempted like you and I often are to look at the lives of other people People who, who seem to not only have it all together, but be on another level than we are and think, ah, wouldn't that be nice? I would love to have what they have, to have their talent or to have their wealth, to have their influence or their notoriety. I'd love to be where they are. Look at what Jesus says in verse 23. Turning to his disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus tells his disciples again, true and lasting joy is found 
in God, specifically in the word of God, in Jesus himself, seeing and hearing and knowing and following him. That is joy. That is true blessedness. Jesus says, their eyes, you disciples, you 72 humble disciples, you are blessed because you see me. These great, ancient, influential prophets and kings, despite their incredible lives, despite their real faith, they would have given up all of their influence, all of their notoriety, all of their wealth, all of their power to see what the disciples now see, to hear the words that they now hear. See, these ancient kings and prophets, they had to look ahead. They had to look into the hazy future to see the true sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world, to see the true prophet who would not only speak God's word, but be the very word of God to them. They, would, they had to look ahead to the great true king that would come to lead, to protect, to guide God's people in his presence forever. The 72 disciples, they may have longed to be like these ancient people of renown, but listen, those ancient kings and prophets desired deeply to be those disciples, to see Jesus in the clear light of day as the disciples do now. Friends, I don't know if you crave notoriety or influence. If you desire to be like somebody else you see on TV or Instagram. But here's, here's the warning that Jesus says. There will come a day for those who are outside of Christ, who have gained the whole world but have lost their souls and would give anything they have to see what you see, to hear what you hear. So friends, don't, don't, if, if you are here this morning and you have an opportunity to see and hear Jesus Christ, you have everything you need because it is in him, it is in God that true and lasting joy is found. It is not found in, in ministry success. It's not found in intellectual achievement. It's not found in notoriety and influence. Let's end with this. Let me ask you for a moment to take a look at your own life. What are the things, potentially even very good things, that Jesus might lovingly correct you over this morning? Good things, perhaps, but things that have become for you God things. What, are the, what, what is the thing, the circumstance, the achievement, the, the relationship, maybe the dollar number that you think if I had that, I would have true and lasting joy. I would finally have peace. The human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. The fires that make idols from the things of this world, they never stop burning inside of each of us. And we are always at risk of losing sight of the source of true and lasting joy. So consider, ask God for insight into your own heart this morning. Let me ask a question for parents. Are you helping your children find true and lasting joy in God, or are you pointing them in other directions? If you have a spouse, same kind of question. Are you helping them direct their time, their attention, their affection, their activities and pursuits towards things that can't ultimately satisfy them, or are you helping them seek joy in the way Jesus understands true joy and praying for them in this way? If you have coworkers, if you have family members that you love, that you want to come to know Jesus, are you pointing to them, pointing them to Jesus, to God, who is the only source of true and lasting joy? Or are you just hoping for, for uh, an easy life for them, comfort and convenience for a short time? What do we do when we discover such a factory at work in our own hearts? What do we do?
when we find that we fail to make Jesus the sacred center of our own hearts. In Counterfeit Gods, this is what Tim Keller writes, the only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn to the true one, the living God, who revealed himself both in Mount Sinai and on the cross. He is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. So let's pray now. As a church, as individuals, let's pray like Jesus does in this text. Let's ask God that he would make these proud, idle factory hearts and make us more like little children. Ask for humility, for forgiveness, for turning from him to things that he's created. Pray that God would do a work of revelation in our hearts, in the hearts of our children, in the hearts of our spouses, in the hearts of this city, so that we could finally see Jesus rightly, so that in him, we can finally find the true and lasting joy we were made for. Amen. Let me invite you to turn in your worship guide to the Lord's Prayer, which we'll pray together in a moment. Let me pray. Father, we can not only confess our sins, but we come to you asking for power to live a new kind of life. Father, we admit that we fail to hear, we fail to see, and so we depend now not on ourselves, but on you to reveal Jesus in all of his glory to us. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on us. God, we ask that you would give this church and the people of it such a desire um, to have joy that we would be crushed and disappointed by every counterfeit God that we set up in your place and instead, with wholeness of heart, to turn to you and to be satisfied finally. We pray all these things in the name of Christ, and amen. And now we pray, using the words our Lord gave us to uh, in Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.